This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to him, them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read the law, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the Word of God. Good morning, Park Church. Ooh, a little boomy. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Before we get into the passage, a couple of quick announcements. Um, One, starting this Wednesday and going through November 3rd. So from October 6th, Through November 3rd, every Wednesday night, we're doing something here at the building in the Highlands called Marriage Conversations. And so we're just creating some space uh, for all of us as you work through marriage. My wife and I have been married about 15 years. And uh, just always walking through different things, growing together, learning together. There are seasons that are harder and seasons that are lighter and seasons where there's a kind of smoothness and seasons where the waters are more choppy. And having people to talk about those things with and process together with, brothers and sisters in Christ, to learn and to grow together is an incredible gift. And so uh, we're creating space and some kind of a structure to uh, walk into those conversations, learn how to have those conversations together and work through different aspects of marriage as we process together with supporting voices. And so those are here at the building from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And I invite you to come if you're... Uh, exploring marriage or you're married right now and just kind of processing different things. It doesn't have to be like a mayday, mayday. It doesn't have to be like, yikes, we're falling apart. If you're falling apart, you can come. Uh, It happens. But also you can just be in normal stuff and just come to invest in your marriage. And so we invite you uh, to be a part of that. Uh, The other announcement uh, is more of just a kind of regular thing that we've kind of got out of the habit of of talking about. As a church family, we want to always welcome in uh, new people into our church family. And so if you're new, I want you to know that as you come here, we're so glad that you would worship with us on Sundays. Uh, But our church family is more than a Sunday gathering. We engage throughout the week, and so we always have opportunities after the service where you can get to know more about our church. We have a room in the back corner of the sanctuary. You can learn a little more about how to get plugged in. And we'd love for you to get more plugged in. The flip side of that is if you are a part of this church family, we want to encourage us, especially after a season of being so disconnected, to continue to lean in to remember what it means to be a part of a family. 
And so we've always said, and for years we would say it every Sunday and during COVID kind of got out of the habit. If you're a part of this family, there, there are things that that means for us and our commitment to one another. One, it means gathering together regularly to worship Jesus because he's worthy, because we need it, because we need one another. Two, it means involving and getting involved in Christian community as we love and serve one another. A third thing it means is serving the church and finding ways to serve the church in some way, just to, whether it's through your gospel community or it's through park kids or, or park teens or a part of a welcoming or hospitality group. So you can go to teams on our website and find ways just to get involved. We're not trying to burden you with kind of excessive commitments. If, if you have like not a lot of margin, there are ways to serve that don't require a lot of margin. Most of us don't have a lot of margin. If I ask people, hey, if you have a lot of margin, will you please raise your hand? And uh, it would be a couple people and uh, you'd be in a unique season of life probably. Um, but another way that we have not talked about a lot is just continuing to give regularly to the church. Uh, as a church family, financial giving is a part of the way we worship God. It's a part of the way we trust him with our resources. It's a part of the way we actually try to cultivate a heart of generosity, which is reflective of God's heart. And it's a part of the way we serve and support the mission that God's given us through the church. And so we don't want to be a church that's afraid to talk about those things. It's really normal. We're not like, we need your money and we want to guilt you into it. We've never been like that as a church. But it is a part of your discipleship. It's a part of your formation. It's a part of your worship. And it's a part of how we pursue the mission together. And so maybe you're somebody who's been coming around, but you've never contributed financially to the mission that God's given us uh, as a church family. I'd invite you just to consider and pray about how you could take a single step towards beginning to give. Maybe it's just the first time you've ever given to a local church. Maybe you have baggage from your past, and even me saying that is like, yikes, I love that this church never talked about money. Uh, sorry. There <laughs> uh, we go. Um, but I want to give you space, process that. Why might that be? And just thinking about what does it mean to actually see my finances as a way to steward my life, to cultivate a heart of generosity, but also to prioritize God's mission through his church. Uh, maybe you've kind of given periodically, but there's a way to take a step towards giving more regularly and saying, I just want this to be a part of my regular rhythm of life as it has been for the people of God throughout centuries. Or maybe it's that you've given but haven't really reevaluated what you're giving and why you're giving and the amount you're giving for a long time, just to create space to pray about that and think about that. This is just a part of our formation as followers of Jesus. And absolutely, yes, it's a part of how we can sustain the mission we're doing. Uh, but we've never been a church that's tried to drive at we need. We want to be a church that's saying this is a part of who we're designed to be. And we want to get back into the habit of regularly talking about it because it's part of what we need as a people. So I invite you to take a step towards that. And the last thing that I want to say about just being a part of this church is to continue to think about how to love and serve this city. Uh, we have this Mission of God course that's going on right now on Tuesday nights and just people exploring together how to love and serve their neighbors, how to get involved in their workspaces or in their neighborhoods or through serving with nonprofits. We just want to be a church that's in the city, loving the city in really tangible and practical ways. So I want to continue to encourage you after a season of being really disconnected, as we come back together, as we begin to get into rhythms together, just leaning into what does it mean to be the family of God. We are made to be a part of this family, and we're so grateful for all the ways that you all have been a part of it and really fruitful and mature and healthy ways. We're grateful for that. Um, I'm going to take a moment and pray for us. We are getting into a passage that uh, is around a topic that is uh, grossly misunderstood, severely neglected, uh, but also um, really, really needed for our own souls. And so let's take a moment and pray that the Lord would open up our heart to hear what Jesus has to say about the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus, we come right now and we are grateful. Uh, even as we talk about what it means to be your family, that we are 
Not merely brothers and sisters in a room gathered together. We are children of the living God, that our Father is with us, that your Spirit is among us, that you care about our hearts, you care about our lives. You don't just care care about some future destination. You don't just care about some sort of uh, legalistic adherence to rules. You care about our flourishing. You care about our health. You care about our nourishment and our souls. Uh, You care about us. And in your care for us, would you today speak to us? Just even seeing Jesus bring restoration into lives as he confronts systems and ideas that were crushing people and actually leads into a way that leads to life and joy and flourishing. We pray you do that among us today, that you'd help us to hear your invitation to come to you, to enjoy your presence and to follow your way, that we would find rest for our souls And would you help us to do it this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Sabbath is the command that we've forgotten to remember. Um, Sabbath is the command that we have forgotten to remember. The fourth commandment, fourth of the ten, ten ten commandments, only ten of them. It's not that many if you're thinking, what are ten things that God would want to say to people? Number four, and the one that takes the most space in the Ten Commandments, is remember the Sabbath. Remember. It's interesting. It's the only command that begins with remember. It's remember the Sabbath. Don't forget the Sabbath. And I think it's the command that we've forgotten to remember. It's because it's really, I think, misunderstood and has been for the past couple centuries, especially over the past 50 years or so in the Western world. Um, It's a command that I never grew up learning much about at all. Uh, I am in my kind of the deepest part of my bones just as my family system where I've come from work is a value I'm a Midwestern boy at heart and children a child of farm parents and just like work 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 kind of uh, it's just in my bones if there's like a context I want to get after something make something better do something that's not just through my job it's even at my house house projects lawn work finance something needs to be done and we should be doing it something could be better something could be different something is broken and we exist to get after it and work and make it better add to that sort of general family environment I'm an Enneagram 3 which now you know my deepest insecurities and fears uh, so good for those of you conversing with the Enneagram you're like that explains a lot you know um, uh, yes, it does explain a lot. Um, for me, even in my personality, with that sort of environment in my household, that value system, just the drivenness to be doing things and to achieve, is just it runs deep within me. Uh, to a, an extent that had been really, really toxic for my life. Even kind of evenings, it always felt like there's a work project to be done or a house project to be done. On weekends, there's lawn work to be done. There's something that needs to happen. There's always something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be cleaned. And I had this sort of like wake up to go to sleep seven day a week, just like drive to be doing things. It's, again, it's not just me, it's my whole family. I look at my parents, really driven kind of uh, hardworking people, and it was a value. Uh, to me, it was a value, and that value kind of led eventually to some real, uh, real sense of collapse. What I felt in life is that I was surrounded by inescapable burdens. There's always more to do, and the little voice in my head is no matter how hard you work, it will never be enough. No matter how hard you work, 
No matter how early you wake up, no matter how late you go to sleep, no matter how efficient you get, no, how, no matter how focused you are, it will never be enough. And it wasn't. It wasn't. And so my life, I'm living, and even kind of in pastoral ministry, we're just like teaching people out the Bible and uh, about the way of Jesus. And somehow in the midst of all of my life and all of my growth as a follower of Jesus and all of my experience in seminary and in grad school and then planting a church and doing it, the idea of God not merely offering a gift but commanding me to remember this day where I stop working. Sabbath just means to stop. It is at its most basic sense saying stop. Take a day, stop. And somehow that command, number four, was just not even in my brain. I I knew about it. I could quote it on a list and I could recite it in Hebrew. And in my life, it had like no, no bearing on my life whatsoever. It's the command that we've forgotten to remember. We've forgotten to remember. And I'm not the only one. Uh, This is what uh, A.J. Swoboda said in his book, The Subversive Sabbath. He says, Sabbath has largely been forgotten by the church, which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The result, our our road-weary, exhausted, our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into the lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It's not as though we don't love God. We love God deeply. We just don't know how to sit with God anymore. He said a couple paragraphs later, he said, the result of our Sabbath amnesia is that we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, and spiritually malnourished people in history. I think he's right. I think he hits the nail on the head. Stats say that one in seven people, roughly 14%, take a day off, like a day off of work. Of those kind of 14 out of 100, if we had kind of 100 people maybe in this little section, if we had 100 people stand up and we said, all right, sit down if you don't take a day off or stay standing if you take one day off of work a week, 14 people would be standing up, right? So maybe two rows. And then you have those two rows standing up and you say, okay, but of the 14 of the 100, how many of you like truly do no work? And the stats say 80% of those 14 take a day off, but still fill it with like different kinds of work, like work that they kind of enjoy or work that they need to get done or something that has to happen. And it would be three out of 100, just under three out of 100, that would take a true day to stop working. The interesting thing is in the kind of Old Testament command, Sabbath is very um, kind of clearly talked about, severe command and clarity around stop all your working for 24 hours. And if we say three out of 100 Americans would kind of in any way come close to that sort of cessation of labor, it's just a fascinating kind of statistic to think about and to consider. And so in our passage today, Jesus is actually confronting a gross distortion of what was happening with Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath in kind of early Christian history and in Jewish history in the first century had become something that was grossly distorted to become a system of oppression, really. A system that burdened people with kind of really painful and difficult kind of obligations, and we'll talk about that. What Jesus is doing in this passage is not abolishing the Sabbath. He's restoring the heart of the Sabbath. Never is Jesus abolishing the fourth commandment. We have in our minds some sense of like, and maybe this is floating in your head, well, isn't Sabbath the only command that's not repeated in the New Testament? Anybody heard that before? Anybody? 
Okay, some people have heard that before. Like, we've found a way to dodge this gift of rest, which is just fascinating. And so it's the, it's, in no way is Jesus in this passage going to abolish the fourth commandment. He's going to restore the heart. So what is the heart of the Sabbath? For Jesus, and this is the heart of the passage, Sabbath is a gift from God designed to bring humanity relief and restoration in God's presence. Sabbath is a gift of God designed to bring humanity relief, a relief from the burdens, the incessant burden, and restoration in God's presence. Relief and restoration in God's presence. And so what I want to do this morning is just a little bit of a a Bible study of sorts. We're going to walk through the passage, and and here's the way, kind of a basic framework for studying the Bible. We're going to make some observations, like what does it actually say? We're going to interpret it. What does that mean? What's the point of what Jesus is doing here, and why does Matthew include it here? And then, and then practically, how do we work that out into our life? People talk about observation, interpretation, application. We're just going to walk through the passage like that. And so if you will, open up, keep your Bible open. We're in Matthew 12. In the immediate context, what we were looking at the last two weeks, is Jesus has just decried and kind of lamented over these cities, pronouncing these woes, that whole cities had forsaken the way of God and had turned to their own kind of approach to life, and it was leading them to destruction. And he was grieving or pronouncing these woes over these cities that they are plunging headlong through different values and practices and rhythms of life on a path towards destruction. And they're not turning back to God and to return to Christ and his kingdom. And so they're running away. And we talked about our society is doing that. We have ways of thinking about life in our society, value systems, practices, behaviors, ideas that are moving us more and more away from the reign of God and the joy and the flourishing life that he gives. And we are running towards a, an approach to life that leads us exhausted and weary and beat down. And it's into that environment that Jesus is standing on the other side saying, come to me. He's not just pronouncing woes. He's actually giving an invitation to anybody who will hear, come to me, all you who are weary and overly burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Follow my way. Learn from me. Be my disciple. Follow my way of life. Walk with me. And you will find rest for your souls because my way of life, my yoke is easy. The burden that I give is light. It's like a mini burden. It's just a way to carry life that feels right. It's like what you're designed for. So he's actually inviting us to turn from a way of life that leads to exhaustion and burnout and to turn towards him who gives a a relief and a rest and a reviving of our soul. And in this passage, Matthew puts these two stories right here in chapter 12, verses 1, all the way through verse 14, two stories to give a sort of case in point. Hey, let me me give you a scenario where you're going to see a way of thinking about rest that crushes people. And then I'm going to show you a way of thinking about rest that actually restores and revives your soul. So he's giving us a sort of case in point. I'm going to work out this great invitation. Cities are running headlong towards destruction. I'm inviting you to another way. Let's work that out in the context of Sabbath. And so here are the stories. Here's how they go. Uh, Verse chapter, chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. All right, so what's going on? It's a Saturday. 
Jesus and his disciples are walking on their, their led lots of walking. Lots and lots of walking for Jesus and his disciples. Every time like they entered into this city, just imagine like a couple hour walk and a couple hour walk. Just a couple hour walks were kind of part of their life. On this particular Sabbath, uh, they're walking through a field. And again, they didn't have this like household with all this kind of, they didn't have Costco runs and they didn't have Instacart stuff set up. Like somebody on their team was in charge of the Instacart order. And so there's always food ready to go. There were days when they'd go without food for quite a while, sometimes multiple days without much food. So on this particular day, they're walking through a grain field and they're hungry. And so if you're familiar with grain, at the head of grain, there's just a bunch of uh, grain seeds, kernels, and you could just pull off the head of grain and you could just eat those seeds and it would nourish you. And so they just started pulling off the heads of grain and, and eating the seeds and those grains and it was nourishing them. It doesn't feel crazy. They were hungry. It's not like they were like planting a field. It's not like they were kind of like redoing a landscaping project. They were just grabbing the heads of wheat off, a, off of a grain and, and eating the grains and filling themselves up. And the Pharisees see that and they say they're doing something that is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So what's going on? Got to kind of get our mind around what's happening with Sabbath. Um, Sabbath was designed to be a 24-hour period of time where people would cease their work and they would slow down to enjoy God's presence, enjoy God's creation, enjoy God's people in a time of restorative and like it's just a 24-hour day of restoration. And so that went all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 where God, after six days of working to create the cosmos and everything in the heavens and the earth, he fills it up, he does all the work, and on the seventh day, God himself rested from all of the work that he had been doing. And he blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on the seventh day he had stopped, he had ceased, he had Sabbathed from all the work that he was doing in creation. He stopped his working. And he took up his home in creation to enjoy the creation. And he invites humanity throughout all of history to enjoy that sort of rhythm of creating, cultivating, working, doing good, faithful work, purposeful work to cultivate creation. Six days of that kind of work. And on a seventh day, just to slow down and to enjoy, to enjoy God's presence, to enjoy creation, to enjoy the goodness of what's happened, to trust God, to keep the world spinning, to keep everything afloat. It's an act of dependence, it's an act of trust, it's an act of refreshment and restoration, it's an act of joy, it's an act of worship, just to slow down for 24 hours. Stop your working and enjoy. Stop your working and enjoy. And so this was the design for humanity. As humanity turned from God's reign and turned from his presence, they're kind of exiled from Eden and now work itself has become more toilsome, more frustrating, more difficult. And it leads to this sort of decreation work where the flourishing rhythms that God had designed for us in humanity were just getting crushed by humanity's kind of plight away from God. And into that, God starts inviting a people, calling a people out to be kind of a new experience of humanity through the children of Abraham. And they wind up in Egypt. And in Egypt, the people of God are under this inescapable burden where they are working and working and working in a system that's crushing them, where they are working to build a a nation that is full of wealth and prosperity with storehouses, where they're working to kind of make these temples that kind of lift up other people and all of this labor and it's crushing the people of God. And and into that inescapable burden, God powerfully redeems them. He rescues them, delivers them out of Egypt and calls them into the wilderness. And in that experience in the wilderness, he gives them some new ways of living, 
new instructions for life. We call them the Ten Commandments. This is what it means to be my people. You had just experienced this, this toxic, suffocating, crushing way of life, and when you're my people, you're going to come out here, and here's what it's going to look like. And he gives the Ten Commandments, and he unpacks the Ten Commandments with another 611 uh, or 603 yeah, case laws. And he's saying, this is what it works, this is what it looks like to be my people. Commandment number four is you experience a crushing burden to your life in Egypt, not so in my kingdom. Not so. My kingdom is going to be a kingdom where there's healthy rhythms of work and rest, not just for you, but for your children, for your servants, for those that work in your household, for your animals, for your fields. So there are all these laws about the Sabbath. I want to read to you just a couple of them because I think it's I think it's helpful just to hear what it says. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. This is a restating of the Ten Commandments at the end of their time in Israel. It says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You were part of a system that was crushing you, just like Jesus decried these cities and this way of living that was crushing people. He's like, I rescued you from that. I pulled you out of that, and I'm giving you a new way to live, new instructions for life, new kind of vision for what life and and creation should look like, new vision for what a human should do in its work and cultivate the land, and it's, it's tiring, and it's hard, and sometimes it's frustrating. There are setbacks, and there are burdens, and that's real. And life in this imperfect age, in the wilderness, it's tough. On this one day of seven, reject the burden. Enjoy my presence. Enjoy my creation. Enjoy the world. Worship, love, show compassion. Do it not just for your sake, but for your family, for the people you work with, for your animals. There are later rhythms of even giving rest for creation itself. It's in the fabric of creation. It's in the fabric of creation. And then over years, people started kind of figuring out, what does that look like? What does that mean? There are really significant commandments here. There are significant penalties, including at times stated that there's a death penalty for people that turn away from the Sabbath. You're like, man, God takes this pretty seriously. And uh, he did. He did. In fact, it became a real kind of point of national pride for the people of Israel because it was the only nation that had a command like this. The kind of two defining marks of Israel, of all their other kind of, kind of dietary restrictions they had and all their rituals, circumcision and the Sabbath were the two that are like, this is sort of baseline foundation of who we are, the things that mark us as a people. Our males are circumcised and we keep the Sabbath. That's like the, the thing that marked them as a people. The thing that was most visible, you know, it makes sense, most visible was not circumcision. That was not the most visible uh, thing to other cultures. Um, the thing that was most visible to other cultures was their Sabbath keeping. It's a thing that set them apart as a people. And so they created a lot of pride in it. Well, the issue became what constitutes keeping Sabbath? What constitutes not working? Is it working to make a meal? Is it working to 
fix that leaky roof? Is it working to rearrange your furniture? Is it what's work? And so the rabbis started creating all these kind of like clarifications of what constituted work. And eventually they developed 39 categories of work that corresponded to 39 categories of making the temple. And there's a lot behind this. But 39 categories of work and anything that fit inside these 39 categories you couldn't do. And it started working its way out into like really, really interesting things. I want to read to you one. This is from the Mishnah, uh, which is sort of um, kind of a collection of oral teachings that eventually got codified in the second century. Uh, But this is one of the teachings. If an alleyway is enclosed on three sides with courtyards opening into it from three sides and the fourth side opens into a public domain, it's prohibited by rabbinic laws to carry objects in it on Shabbat. Did you track all that stuff? Okay, good. As long as you're with me so far, because it goes further. Um, However, carrying in an alleyway under those circumstances is permitted if a crossbeam is placed horizontally over the entrance to the alleyway. The Mishnah teaches that if the crossbeam spans the entrance to the alleyway at a height above 20 cubits, tracking? If it's above 20 cubits, right, we're lost, right? There are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of these in all sorts of realms. This one's about where you can carry things. There's stuff about what kind of food you can eat and, and how far you can travel from your house and, and, and how much you can kind of do in this realm and, how, and what you can do for an animal in this situation. And they started multiplying, like trying, we don't want to mess this up because this is who we are. In fact, it got to a point in the second century BC, there's a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who was kind of on this rampage and really out to destroy the people of Israel. And there were these Maccabeans who were revolting against Antiochus Epiphanes. And when Epiphanes was attacking them on Shabbat, they wouldn't fight. They'd succumb to the slaughtering of their people, which they later decided was a bad decision. Um, <laughs> fascinatingly, they'd rather be slaughtered than violate the Sabbath. This is how important it was to them. People had died for this, to keep this. And so when they're seeing some people harvesting, which gleaning laws is very kind of clear in rabbinic teaching, you don't harvest on Sabbath, and pulling kind of the heads off of these grains of wheat is a subcategory in the Mishnah of harvesting. They're breaking the rabbinic law. What are you doing? How could you be the Messiah doing all these things and break laws like this? And it feels crazy feels crazy. But it's a way that they mounted up their identity. It's a way that they found kind of a sense of purpose and identity. Our deviation from God's design for the Sabbath is not like that. But we have deviated from God's design for the Sabbath. We lost the heart of the Sabbath too. They lost the heart of it by creating for themselves a way of kind of establishing an identity through religious, rigorous religious adherence to some set of ethical teachings And we find other ways to kind of establish purpose and worth through accumulation, achievement, more, 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 more experiences, uh, a bigger house, more income, more work, more productivity. Kind of we, we, how many times have we said, man, there aren't enough hours in a day. There aren't enough days in a week. Yeah, there are. There are exactly how many God designed there to be. We're saying we are trying to do more than we are designed to do. And just because everybody else is doing that doesn't mean it's normal or healthy. We've turned from God's design. We've actually created whole lifestyles that make it almost impossible to stop for a day because we've just committed to too much. We've committed to a rhythm and a pace and a kind of expectation of productivity that just transcends human capacity. It's just beyond what we were made to do. And so we've also found a way that people from other cultures would look at the amount that we try to accomplish and how much identity we put in what we accomplish, what we accumulate, what we achieve, and they'd say they would laugh 
They would laugh at our pace of life. I hope people 100 years from now will look back at this thing and think, they were nuts at how much they were trying to do. Didn't they know that was crushing them? It's like, yeah, we found out, you know. In like 2020, a guy wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and we all read it because we were like, ah, that, that, that's significant. Like, we all feel it. We all feel it. It's all around us. And so was Jesus violating the Sabbath? No, he wasn't violating the heart of the Sabbath. He was violating religious teachings on the Sabbath or some of the rabbinic teachings on the Sabbath, but he wanted to bring people to the heart, and that's what he does here in the passage. He says this, and I think it's stunning what he does here. Um, Jesus isn't defensive. He's, like, he's not like, well, no, it's, it's, that's just the rabbinic teaching, but if you look, he, he's not being defensive. He's actually going to make some really bold claims. And he's not even, he's kind of trying to convince them, but he's not even trying to convince them so much as he's established secure in who he is and his understanding of God's design for the Sabbath. And he speaks into it in a way that he knows is going to be incredibly provocative for them. So here's what he says. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Uh, he speaks about this. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter. If you go start at like chapter 19, but it's chapter 21. David goes into, it was before the temple existed, into the tabernacle in a place called Nod, and he goes before one of the priests, Ahimelech, and his, he's hungry. He's on the run. It's like a Jason Bourne thing. Start in chapter 19, and you're going to get this like, he's being pursued by his own government. All right, Saul's after him, and he's running, and he's hiding everywhere, and Saul wants to kill him. Saul's the current king. David's the anointed king, and Saul wants to crush him because somehow David's a threat to his kingdom, and so Saul wants to kill him. So David's running around, hiding in different places. He's got a group of people, and he's trying to find food. He's trying to find shelter. He's trying to find weapons to defend himself. He's trying to keep his family safe. He's got an inside man and his buddy, and uh, Jonathan, and he's walking in this, in this life, and, and he's hungry. He can't find food. And so he goes to the temple, draws near to God's presence, saying the temple might be a place I can get nourishment. And he goes in the temple, and the only food there is the bread of the presence called the showbread, which is the priests would kind of exchange it. They'd put it before God, and when it cooled down, they'd take it, and the priests would eat it, and they'd put hot bread back before the altar, and they would eat it. And so nobody else could eat this bread. But here's David, and he and his men are hungry. And he goes into the temple, and he asks Ahimelech, do you have some food? And he's like, all I have is this holy bread. And he's like, well, we're hungry. It's like, all right, are you like more or less keeping yourselves pure? He's like, yeah, kind of. And they're like, okay, here, you know, and he gives it to them. That's what happens. And, uh, and they eat it. And, and Jesus is doing an argument that was really common in rabbinic teaching. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying, if David did that, then I can do this. Now, the implication is Jesus is greater than David. It's not just people are hungry, it was David was hungry. And the Jewish people didn't think David had broken this law because David's their king, David's their guy, David's their kind of, you know, the prototypical king of Israel. And Jesus is saying, I'm a more significant king. My kingdom and the things I've come to accomplish are more. If David could do that, then how much more can me, the Messiah, the one that David was pointing to, and my followers, grab some grain on Shabbat? It's provocative. Next thing he says is even more provocative. He says this. He says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? 
He's saying, on Sabbath, you all are working really hard to not work. Do you know who is working? Priests, which I resonate with that because on Sundays, I hope it's really restful for you, but it's not super restful for me because, uh, hey. Uh, and, uh, and so he kind of like, he's like, the priests are working on the Sabbath to cultivate space for people to draw near the presence of God. It's, it, and we know that, right? They're, they're violating all these things about not working, but we're cool with it because they're cultivating a space for you to worship. Implication, again, from the lesser to the greater, and Jesus says it explicitly, I'm telling you something greater than the temple is here. We are here, Jesus and his disciples, to cultivate a space where people can draw near to the presence of God. And where is that presence? Jesus is like, I am that presence. I am the temple. I am the place that people draw near to the presence of God. And so for us to do work, to cultivate space for people to draw near to the presence of God, for us to refresh ourselves as we're part of this mission that's creating space for people to draw near to me, is totally appropriate. And you, and you kind of begin to get this sense of like, the, the Pharisees around are like, what are you saying? And Jesus leaves no room for doubt. He said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What he's saying is God's word, this is Hosea 6.6, 6, that God's laws were not trying to like create all these rules for everybody to follow. They're actually aimed at love, compassion, a love for God and a love for neighbor. He's saying, this is what it's always been about, and I have the power to explain to you what it's about because, in the passage, it says, for the Son of Man, which is his favorite self-title, is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I am sovereign over the Sabbath. I am the designer of the Sabbath. I am master of the Sabbath. Sabbath exists to serve my purposes. So what he said. And for him, that sort of bold claim is the type of claim that was going to lead to his death. And you're going to see it at the end of this passage in, chapter, in verse 14. When they hear these things, they're not like, oh, that makes sense. Thanks for teaching us. They're like, come over here. How are we going to kill this guy? Can you believe what he's saying? Can you believe what he's doing? And so he says that he's greater than Sabbath. Sabbath exists to serve his purposes. So what are those purposes? He's going to give another example here in the passage in verse 9 through 13 of him on Sabbath going in. There's a man with a withered hand on Sabbath in the synagogue. Jesus walks right into the synagogue and people are like, hey, you know, let's, let's just test this out. Let's see if he'll break the law again. Is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? Their claim was no, it's not. And he doesn't argue from Scripture this time. He actually argues just from common sense. Hey, if you had an animal that fell into a ditch, wouldn't you get it out? And they absolutely would have. They would get the animal out of a ditch. They wouldn't be like, the animal falls in the ditch on Saturday morning. They're like, well, I hope it's still there on Sunday morning. Uh, they just get the animal out of the ditch. And he's saying, this is a human being who's hurting. And the law has been about compassion from the beginning. And he, and he speaks over the man and he heals the man's arm, and this is what provokes him to, to want to kill him. So what, what's Jesus saying in the passage? And I think it's stunning. Um, and I'm just going to say it in a few sentences. Number one, the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. In the same passage in Mark, he's going to say this, but that's what he's saying. He's saying Sabbath didn't exist to, to say you can't eat food. Sabbath didn't exist to say you can't move your chair a little bit to the left. Sabbath didn't exist to say you can't. Sabbath existed to give you a space to be relieved of your burdens and to experience restoration for your life. It was made for humanity. It was a gift to you, not a burden to you, not a have to, not a, not a crushing thing, 
but absolutely this is the way to live, a gift given to you to invite you to be who you're made to be, to embrace your humanity and dependence on God. Number two, Sabbath points us to God's presence and his kingdom. It points us to God's presence. When Jesus is saying, I am the temple, something greater than the temple is here, he's saying Sabbath exists to actually allow us to draw near to God's presence. Um, a guy named Eugene Peterson, in case you haven't heard of him, he, uh, he wrote the Bible in English. Um, uh, he wrote a translation of the Bible called The Message, and, uh, and he has a phrase that, um, you know, he calls, he calls a day off a bastard Sabbath. And, and what he's saying when he says a bastard Sabbath is he's saying that it's disconnected from its source. It's so, again, like just taking a day off and actually not creating space to delight in God, to worship God, to draw near to God, is to, is to kind of eliminate part of what Sabbath was designed for. Third, Sabbath is aimed at being restorative. When he heals this man's arm, what he's saying is this is what Sabbath was all about. It was all about the restoration of life. It was never about crushing burdens that leave people exhausted and weary. It's always about restoration, both in this life, but it also, and this is the third piece, it also teaches us to hope in the ultimate restoration that's to come. I don't know, if you think about retirement, if you're not yet retired, if you are retired, I'm so happy for you and jealous of you. Um, but when you think about retirement, you think about that day when like there's not a deadline tomorrow, right? And we tend to fill ourselves up with other things to do. I get that. But there's not a deadline tomorrow. There's not like a get up and kind of punch in the clock. Like the day that that part of life is over, right? You kind of like live your life and you kind of look forward to that kind of thing. Sabbath in our life is like a foretaste of, of that. All of that is like a foretaste of the resurrection, where there's purpose, there's meaning, there's life, there's joy, there's creation, there's goodness, there's activity, but there's no burden. That day is coming. There's a rest yet to come. And Sabbath is a sort of hopeful deposit, a foretaste into that life. And all of the imperfections I feel every Sabbath day when we take time as a family for 24 hours to stop our working, it's never perfect. It's always like something's hard or something goes difficult or something's a little bit different than we expected. That's life. But it reminds me that this isn't the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is the resurrection of the dead when Jesus comes and makes all things new. It points us to that hope. It's not the fulfillment of it, but it's a taste of it. It's a step towards it. We're made for it. And so let me give you just a couple uh, practical thoughts here. A couple practical thoughts. Do we have to keep the Sabbath? Do we have to? Well, if you're asking, do I need to keep the Sabbath in order for God to be kind of pleased with me and accept me, the answer is no. God's pleasure in you and acceptance of you is where all of Matthew is going. That Jesus ultimately would succumb to the opposition from these relig religious leaders. He would ultimately march up a hill, take upon himself a cross, and he would lay his life down for us, shed his blood to atone for our rebellion, atone for our sin, wash us, accept us, so that we could exp experience his presence quite apart from anything we've done or haven't done in life. That our acceptance before God is a gift of grace. So do we have to keep the Sabbath? It is one of the baseline instructions for human flourishing. Commandment number four. That was never abolished, never kicked to the curb, never said not important anymore. Jesus said don't forget the heart of it. Don't lose the heart of it. But it's always been God's design for living. So do we have to keep the Sabbath? 
It's God's instructions for your life. So what, what I don't want you to hear me doing is like placing on you, I have to. But when you hear the invitation of Jesus, come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, by the way, kind of our culture tends to live, come to me. Experience joy in my presence. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Follow the way I think about Sabbath. Follow the way I think about rest. Follow the way I think about life. It's a place of compassion, a place of love, a place of care for other people. It's a place of rest, a place of worship, a place of joy, a place of delight. So the question I want to ask is, why would you not take up the invitation of Jesus? Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? One of the things our rabbi is teaching us is to follow him into rhythms of rest. So what would that look like? It would look like making a decision to take a step towards a 24-hour period of time where you say no to burden. Doesn't that sound good? So I think about the word, I think about when I think about Sabbath, is rejecting burden. That's what I'm thinking about for 24 hours. I'm rejecting burden. If something feels burdensome, nope. Except for like diaper changing, which is a new thing. That feels burdensome, but... <laughs> Honey, would you change the diaper? Nope, Sabbath. <laughs> uh, like Sabbath for me too. So our baby just sits with like a poopy diaper for 24 hours. That's the sort of like ox in the ditch situation. We're like, we got to do this thing. Um, got to do it. Reject burden. Pick a 24-hour period. It doesn't have to be on Sunday. Sunday is a good day for me. Again, Sundays are uh, our work day. And so for me, we take Fridays and Saturdays off. I do Saturdays. I do from Friday night, right when my kids get home, about 5 p.m., kind of finishing up stuff till Saturday evening when my kids go to bed. And from that 24-hour period of time, we stop. That means Fridays for me, mowing the lawn, doing housework, cleaning up the house, buying groceries, fixing stuff up, trying to get a house project as far as I can. Fridays are busy. Fridays are really busy. I'm throwing everything that feels like they got to get it done this weekend stuff into Fridays. So that when Saturday night comes, we're slowing down and we're going to take 24 hours. So find a day. Second just practical idea is create a ritual. Uh, we have an entry into Sabbath. We've been doing this for now for three years or so. We have an entry into Sabbath ritual where we just light a couple candles. We say some prayers. If you're looking for ideas, we can kind of, we can provide some ideas. Uh, we have our kids just walk through, why are we lighting these candles? And what's Sabbath about? We read a scripture. We sing the doxology. We say a prayer. And then we eat pizza and we watch a movie. Every Friday night. Every one. We know what's happening. Sometimes we order it. Sometimes it's frozen pizza. DiGiorno's because the rising crust. You know, it's not delivery. It's a DiGiorno. Uh, you know, but like eat a pizza. We have fun. We, we play. We, then we, the next day, get donuts or make a Dutch pancake or chill in the morning. Spend some slow time with Jesus. Maybe we like climbing as a family. Maybe go climbing if we want to. If it feels like a burden, nope. You know, like, uh, and we just take it easy. Read a book. Take a nap. Enjoy. Listen to what Dan Allender says in his book called Sabbath, and I think this is beautiful. He says this, The Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. I totally agree. It's the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. The day we remember on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast and play and dance and have sex and sing and pray and laugh and tell stories, read, paint, walk, watch creation in its fullness. 
Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. For me, the only day of my life I would legit rest in a year was Christmas Day. We'd finish Christmas Eve services, shut it down, go make a trampoline in the backyard in the middle of the night in the dark for the kids, you know. You know anybody who <laughs> done it? You know, okay. And then you like wake up the next morning and it's like Christmas Day. Nobody's texting, nobody's calling, just feasting, eating, playing, enjoying. For us, it now feels like three years into this, every Saturday feels like a little Christmas. It really does. It's a total joy. Why would you not receive the gift of Sabbath? But don't lose its heart. Don't lose its heart. Remember, Sabbath was made to bring relief of burdens, but also to invite you to experience restoration in God's presence, to lead you to enjoy him, enjoy his creation, and enjoy it with his people. This is the invitation Jesus is giving us, and I invite you to take a step into practicing it. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you now. We don't want to fall back into legalistic bondage, uh, we don't want to put the shoulds and the oughts on everybody and make people feel guilty for anything. And so I pray if there's any sense of guilt, like I should be doing this better, or why is this so hard, that you just speak over them grace, love, mercy, compassion. It's a practice that just means it takes practice. It takes time. Like anything, it's, there's skills and rhythms and so much to learn in different seasons of life with Young kids, it's different. The new marriage, it's different. With different jobs, it's different. So I pray you would give people just just kind of sweep away the guilt and the pressure. Sweep it away for people. And I pray you'd let them hear a really sweet and gracious invitation. Come to me. Learn from me progressively, little by little. Learn from me. I want to give your soul rest. I'm going to give your soul rest. And so, Jesus, I pray you'd help us to be a people that learn to actually live in such a countercultural way that we'd be a people that enjoy a peaceful, joyful rest with you. Help us learn. And I pray our lives would change for it and that you'd get glory from it as we learn to draw near to you in a restful way as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media, Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.